Hello and welcome back to Coffee and Consoles, the show where we talk about your favorite songs and ours. Today, we'll be discussing Allison Krauss and Union Station's Paper Airplane. Hey, Kevin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, and the listeners may have noticed we have ditched our electric <laughs> guitars for the first time. Yeah, no electrics this time. We're going unplugged. That's right, and it has made the recording setup a bit more complex, which means we'll probably have a bit more room noise in the speaking sections. Perhaps. Yeah. I guess it's all speaking, but... That's true. It might sound slightly different, but I came in with my acoustic, and you're like, oh yeah, you have your acoustic today. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I had thought you would bring it, but part of me, well, I had just finished playing hockey, this morning, and I was like, we'll yeah. see if he brings. I'm not going to set up the mics just yet. He had hockey brain still. Yeah. I was like, how can thing? I throw this mic in the net? <laughs> hockey brain is a thing. It's more It's more so tired brain, though, because once you get tired, you just forget to do things or decide not to do yeah, them. Yeah, just case. collapse. <laughs> We've had quite a busy week. Yes, we did. So let's, uh, shall we start off? Uh-oh, the acoustic Toast of the Roast song. Acoustic Toast of the Roast. Toast to the Roast! Something like that. Beautiful. What are you drinking this fine morning, I am drinking... Just a normal coffee you can buy at any store made by the fine folks of Javalia. Ooh, Javalia. Which I believe is a Swedish company. I think so, yeah. But coffee doesn't grow in Sweden, does it? Does it not? I don't think so. Oh, Because it's typically grown in very warm, tropical-esque. I suppose, yeah, that's true. So so. I wonder where they get it from. Clearly Mm. they're roasting it themselves, but... They have to source oh. the actual product from somewhere. I don't know. Maybe we can get in touch with the Javalia people. Maybe they're listening. They'd, <laughs> maybe they'd like to sponsor. That's right. Javalia. We'll take a sponsorship. I really like Javalia. I, it, for my money, it's one of the better just bags of coffee you can buy. Actually, yeah, I'd agree. Usually they have a, sometimes you might find, I think they might just call it their breakfast blend, but it's one of their light roast that I like. I or like light roast bags. in bags, Yeah. Yeah, as far as uh, grocery store brands, Javalia is pretty, uh, pretty, solid. pretty reliable. And yeah. I also like, now I'm, I can hear the, the cries already, <laughs> but I also like the Dunkin' Donuts breakfast blend. <laughs> it's pretty good, man. It's pretty cheap, too. Yeah, for the price, it's kind of hard to beat. Oh, I see. For the yeah, price. Mm. Um, since we're talking, you know, generic grocery store brand coffee, but, uh, the Kroger, they're Private selection. Private selection. Yeah, yes. they have a uh, your giraffe blend that's pretty good. How do you say that? I think it's your giraffe. Your giraffe, something like that. Hmm. Once I, I walked to a coffee shop and I saw that as like their daily blend or daily roast, I guess. I'm like, I'll take that. Don't know how you pronounce it. And they told me, I think that it's you're a giraffe. You're a giraffe. Hmm. And that's kind of how you kind of slur it all together and you're a giraffe <laughs> i might just be talking on my ass right now <laughs> I'll, I'll take it as gospel sounds yeah sounds really right good enough for me no the one's fine, gonna fact check us yeah the fine 
gentleman at Bongo Java. That's how he a said fine it. <laughs> college dropout who's very upset with his life. Who's Probably. <laughs> very cranky. They're, man, those folks over there are very cranky. They tend to be. You know. But to be fair, they are across the street from a college, and that would yes. make me cranky as well. Yeah, so exactly. I can't blame them. But yeah, hey, you know what? It's pretty tasty, though. Can't I complain. Like it. I like Yeah. Suitable for Especially, today's selection. I would. I used to walk across the street and, and get a uh, breakfast platter. It was like hash brown eggs and toast for like five bucks. Yeah. And that was... The bongo basic, as they call the it. The bongo basic. That was the best. It was Especially great. after like a late night of, you know, drinking or whatever. Yeah. You walk across the street or more so like crawl across the street get get a bongo basic you, amateur you end up you end up spending like 630 or something with tax yep. and they they raised their prices since then but it, it was that thing is now eight dollars eight dollars really? yes in no the eight years that i lived here it went from five to eight i would not Jeez. buy that for eight dollars inflation anyway so i tell you what <laughs> i have been coast to coast basically this week yeah. John and I... Well, I've been to one coast with you. John and I came out to California on... Yeah, we had a... Uh, what day was that? Last weekend. Was it so Was, was it in the weekend? Flew out on the Friday. Okay. So we got hired to do what ended up being a surprise 70th birthday party. They flew a 15-piece band. Yes. Just so <laughs> so you know the level of wealth we're people? talking. Yeah. yeah. Oh, for my 120 gosh. people, steak dinners for everyone. The band yeah. played for, what, two hours, I think, we played for? A little bit. It was about three total. I think we maybe had, yeah. played a little jazz, Yeah. We in quotes, of course. Kind of eased them into eased, it. Eased into the night. Yeah. You know, they brought in all the production. You know, they hired a production team. We had yeah. we had some great production, really. I mean, they brought some, some good Backline. gear. Backlined. Backlined yeah. all the instruments. Some of the wireless was a little... Iffy. Some of the wireless. Yeah. Well, the wireless itself was good, but we didn't really, I guess this is my fault, I didn't really go through each individual pack and make sure it was set up correctly. Because those things are just used and abused. Oh, I know. Yeah, As- well, aside from like making sure everyone had signal. <laughs> I, you well, know. they had something that was not working for, because usually I'll go wireless as well on electric and... Oh, oh, they oh. They couldn't do it. Yeah, I'm, th- I'm thinking like so the he wireless actually forgot. Yeah, he actually yeah. forgot the uh, the pack or yeah. or like the turnaround that he needed to make the connection. So what I learned, I learned a lot this weekend <laughs> with when you when you deal with an outside company who isn't used to your show, you have to really make sure they understand what the show is. And what our show is, is it's a three hour choreographed dance show. It's more of a show band than than a wedding band. Yeah, it's it's nuts. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it's like a train. Once the show yeah. starts, it doesn't stop. And no. so he was thinking it was just going to be like ten guys just standing around playing. Yeah, he your typical quote unquote wedding band. Yeah, he didn't understand that. You play the hits, the whole you know. Show. Yeah, those singers want wireless mics, but you You're know, not going to really use them. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so the wireless is a huge part of the show. I mean, without the wireless, the show can't happen. It just would just would be impossible. So uh, I learned that my name is now going on the bottom of all of our tech writers with my number <laughs> that says, please call me while you're packing the show Yes, because we need to talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not, and again, they did a great job, you know, uh, you know aside from just not understanding that there was going to be 24 channels of wireless and oh my gosh. Every, every single one had to be used. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, this one, one of the guys was trying to like, 
put together some contraption to like get the like for a wireless guitar like you know your wireless unit goes to the uh i guess plug in from the guitar the wireless pack goes to the unit but then i need that to go back quarter inch into my board so then you know so i can use yeah. my effects yeah, and effects overdrives and stuff, that sort right. of thing and then that goes into a di usually so when I, out of a uh, hx stomp pedal that i use which has come in really handy over this past year. Oh yeah, that's a little that. little thing. It's great. Yes, yeah, nice little beast for six hundred bucks. Kind of hard to beat. But yeah, but they're all their wireless packs. They didn't have, they couldn't go out, or they didn't have enough cabling. Or he was trying to like go from an XLR out of that yeah, unit to. Yeah, I almost to a suggested that he had we like just, three adapters around, going around. Yeah, and, oh was, my gosh, it was, it wasn't working. <laughs> but suffice to say, as I was watching the show. I didn't think it was fine. Oh man, this this is terrible. You yeah, know, if John was out there, you know, shaking his hips, it would be much much better <laughs> yeah, show. Breaking a hip, more like it. <laughs> yeah. So so you had to run around stage with a cable dangling from me and just making sure none of the singers or Tripping dancers like trip over it. But just like the old days, huh? I know, right? Going old school. So, but anyway, yeah, that, that was a eventful. Yeah, that was an eventful Outing. trip. Yeah. And then and then straight after that trip, we get back, we're home for one day and we go to Atlanta for yeah. another show. John did not join us on that. Trip. No. No. Luckily for him. I have some teaching duties during the week that yeah. I have to Usually I try to be good that with was, keeping. <laughs> that was an early show too. We got done playing our, not too late. I think we finished around midnight, but we didn't we didn't actually end up getting to our hotel and getting to bed or until about two because mm. we had to drive a little then we had to be up by eight which is eastern time so you're automatically an yeah. hour off and then we had to be back in nashville for a show on downtown yes at jason aldean's place down on broadway now i was back on that one and john was back are. on that one yeah, and i think john downtown. could tell yeah I everyone was, and i was looking at him like <laughs> did you all leave you had to have left this morning because yeah I almost thought maybe y'all would make the drive back from Atlanta to Nashville at night, but whew. A couple guys did leave that night yeah. and made it back around 4 or 5 in the morning. Yeah, it's one of those things that's like, depending on how late you play, that that four-hour drive, and you do get the hour back when it is... Get the hour back. You know, Nashville's in central time. For me, it's oh. like, if we're, down, if we're out of there by like 10.30, 11, I will consider it. Yeah, because you, you can get back by maybe 2, 2.30-ish or so, so yeah, that's not so it's, terrible. It's kind of late, but yeah. doable if you're in a bind. But if it's, if you know, 11, 12, no way. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to bed before 3. That's. <laughs> I know there are, man, there are some musicians out there. You tend to see this more for, like, original acts, like original bands that, you know, because they don't have any money, so they don't, spend money on hotel rooms at all That's or if they do they know. buy one hotel room for you know five people it's like <laughs> you know that's sort of, we've heard stories like that from other uh band members before but yeah so people make the drive back from texas back to nashville and all in one night and they're like a zombie for the next week like Those, I, I can't tip my that. hat to them yeah. that's that's a hard thing to do oh, kind of dangerous though you it's know super when you're that dangerous tired. yeah it's not worth it seriously it's not worth it like even I'm at the point in my life that I would just shell out the money myself to stay in a hotel room if I need to be. Yeah, if it's more than about 
two three hours that night yeah it's just i don't know because you, you do lose it. the whole next day too it's not just yeah. you know you're so tired that you're just the whole next day is yeah so unproductive it's one thing when you're, you're cranky like and 23 and you, know, you can go about two days with no sleep sometimes <laughs> but man once you get in the mid 30s and that's why I, I like to think of myself still in the mid 30s ah <laughs> Kind of more on the uh, that that threshold. I like to think of myself in the mid twenties. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, but yeah, it gets a little tougher. The old body doesn't. Yeah, happy to have the gigs though. I mean, it was a yeah, very definitely. productive week. That's definitely. for sure. It was. It was a busy week. So now we're here, and we're going to talk your selection. I think it is my selection, and yeah. for the first time, we're talking about a genre of music that I actually work in a lot. You do. You you yeah. do a lot of a uh, bluegrass mixing, I acoustic, guess you could say. Yeah, acoustic, acoustic music. bluegrass. Um I would well, really I would love to do more of it and even I would love to even get into like more of the folk kind of genre cuz you know, yeah. I feel like from there it can kind of branch out. I I like all sorts of different types of music, but that's what I've found myself working in the most. And I've really grown to appreciate it. Mm-hmm. You know, nowhere you can hide. In a, Best, in a yeah, it's very, uh, very vulnerable in a sense. Both from the playing side, the musician side, and you know, singing as well. But I imagine from the, on the mixing side as well. Like, yeah, absolutely. You can't like hide stuff. Yeah, it's, making making an overdub into a part of a song becomes a lot trickier. Cause, yeah, you know, just everything's the, acoustic. You have that the natural ambience and resonance of the exactly. instruments themselves, and within the room, and then a lot of it's recorded. At once, you know, yep. traditionally at least, you know, a lot. Of no, no, that's still uh, pretty, pretty prevalent. As and if they aren't, they almost always do it at like the basic tracks at once. But some, you know, you'll put them in separate rooms where they can still see each other. So you will have some separation. Yeah, that's you know, true. When yeah. you need to make overdubs, but like you know, I would say the majority of like acoustic music, it's really important for you know all the players to all kind of be bouncing ideas off each other we'll spend mm-hmm. so it was funny yes. i was reading the sound on sound article about this mix yeah. that what mike shipley did it so i guess we'll just get into it yeah so let's talk about what we're going to talk about paper airplane paper airplane yeah the name Allison of the Krauss. album and the song title track from uh 2011 2011 so yeah. it won the best engineered non-classical grammy in 2012. Yes. So engineered by Mike Shipley, and there is a few other guys who, you know, help tracking, and mm-hmm. they're accredited if you go on the Grammy page and look at it. But the interesting thing about Mike Shipley is before this album, he had not, re- like, actually engineered, as in tracked and mixed, an entire album for about a decade. Wow. And, yeah. it, like, in the music industry, that can be, like, a... That's a lifetime. That's a lifetime. Yeah, that's a, a lifetime. Yeah. Especially with the changing technology, you know, especially oh, during those, yeah. that, the 2000s decade is essentially when we went from analog to digital, like. Yeah, so he would have been like right fully. at the, he probably got frustrated with the the very end, probably. the very <laughs> beginning of the analog era and the very end of the analog era. era. But you would know his work from the great acoustic band Def Leppard. Oh, I, I love their. <laughs> the uh, he's also worked with other great acoustic acts named Van Halen, Aerosmith, Black Crows, The Cars, 
<laughs> of course, I'm joking when I say. I mean, yeah, a couple of them are more like you know, uh, new grass versus the traditional. Approach, yeah, yeah. But, you know. <laughs> He's even worked with a couple of, like straight up hair bands, like like Rat. Yeah, Rat with love, the love second me some T. Rat. <laughs> Two T's. Two T's. So when Allison Krauss asked him to mix and engineer this album, I'm sure he was thinking, "What?" Yeah, it seems out of the blue. Out of the blue, crazy. And he even says when he showed up to the first session, Jerry Douglas, the Dobro player in Union Station, was kind of looking at him, reading this magazine, looking at him, reading the magazine, looking (laughs) back and going, it says here you haven't done anything for 10 years and you you worked on Def Leppard in the 80s? Why are you here? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And he he was kind of like, yep. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. Nice to meet you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of curious. Like, why do they, how do they find him, know about him? Why did he say yes? Perhaps, I mean, could have just said yes because he needed the job. I don't, know, I don't know if he if he really did, though, because probably not after that. Probably not after that. For 10 years, he'd probably just yeah, kind of like be retired for the yeah, was, rest of your life. You know, it was kind of kind of older by that point. Yeah, living up in Australia. Because I, th- I think he's an Aussie from what I, I think, saw. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. He worked a lot with Mutt Lang and. Allison Krauss yeah. said he loved the work he did with Mutt Lang. He, she said, "I would love for you guys to come in and." Work so that on must this. have been it, yeah. So yeah, kind of kind of crazy yeah. how that all happens. But. And is this um, you had mentioned before we started that they kind of started this album in one location as far as the recording studio, and they kind of like went from location to location a little bit. They started one spot, yeah, weren't happy with how either the vibe or I think it was mostly the vibe because they were yeah. in another you know, a level studio here in Nashville. So they, and all yeah. those studios have, you know, great equipment, great acoustics. Oh yeah. Um, but they, you know, they Shipley said that he thought that, you know, Allison may have been to that studio one too many times recently. And, you know, the vibe wasn't quite there. They just, you know, couldn't really get any work done. The The sessions felt sluggish and they, you know, they weren't rolling. And I'm sure you've experienced this with whether it be a session or, or like a sound check even, whereas like sometimes you just, you just have this feeling where it's just not working and like, I don't know what it is. It's the venue. Is it, you know, the engineer, you know, this yeah. or that, but sometimes just changing one of those things can really kind of give everyone a new energy. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's human nature. Like if you go to the same place day after day, you know, like it just becomes mundane and boring and you know, it doesn't matter. Like it's hard to spur on the creative side. Again, right. If you, yeah. You know, say been to the recording studio for half a dozen other albums in your past or so. Um, Cause I didn't realize this, like at least Alison Krauss, she's put out a lot of albums. And by oh, yeah. this point, 2011 when they at least a little before when they started working on this album um she had already like 13 other albums under her belt so i can imagine like especially if she did several of those at this you know one studio here in town that eventually you just you know <laughs> need a different environment different atmosphere yeah to just kind of switch it up it doesn't mean up, that studio yeah. isn't great it just means that you no, need a no. little bit of a change so they ended up recording at the house of blues which I've never worked in there. I, I didn't know. even know th- <laughs> there was a recording. Like, there yeah, was such it's, a really, recording it's really studio. cool. Um, it's in Barry Outside Hill. of the venue, yeah. And uh, they, they this, Oh, yeah, that House of Blues. I know yeah, which yeah, one you're talking about the now. big mural yeah. on the fence. I always drive past it every once in a while because yeah. it's close to where uh, there's a uh, local uh, luthier, you know, for guitar repair and such. And 
they live in the same area. So I always really drive past it. Like, how can they have that name? Like, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the House of Blues recording studio. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's also by a very good burrito restaurant. It is, yes. Called Baja Burrito. Highly recommended if you're. In oh Nashville. my gosh, yeah. So the the sessions after they found the studio, the sessions took place over two years. So it took two years to do this, which is insane. Which is like, a it's a even long by, time by that point. Yeah, it's a long time, know. and it's not like it doesn't sound like they were. It's like they were working, you know, seven hundred plus days. Yeah, it wasn't straight. like like some of the albums and rec, rec, um, recordings we were talking about when you know bands were, you know in the studio for six months, that sort of thing. They're living there, so this right. is not that case. Yeah, this, this is, is not the case. This It seems like the case where they would work a you know, week on, week off, you know, yeah. two-month break here, you know, let's get back to the studio on this day type of thing. Especially since it's local, and I think most of them live here. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure they do. And that, that actually is even more impressive that Mike Shipley was able to get such a, like, coherent sound throughout the entire album just knowing that you know everything's changing all the time yeah yeah you're not going just day to day to day you might be going a couple tracking sessions one week and then nothing for a month perhaps so so tip my hat to to mike shipley on that one definitely Um, one thing he did say is that allison liked working in kind of old school rooms okay because it didn't distract her you know kind of darker rooms with not yeah. too much going on. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I can see that. I was actually, this kind of brings me up to a good point. When we were in Atlanta, in between the show and the sound check, we had some downtime. We were just talking in the green room, and a guy in the band was asking me, like, why would someone even go to a studio these days? I mean, it's a worthy question. And one of my points... I was kind of playing devil's advocate because everyone else was like, no, you don't need to. And I was like, well, I was like, you have, you know, there are pros and cons, you know, one yeah. of the pros is they have $2 million worth of equipment. Usually. You, yeah, yeah. You know, you have your amazing recording console, you have your yeah. amazing microphones. And more importantly is you have the logistics to do whatever you want when you want to do it. Mm-hmm. It's not like you got to wait 30 minutes for you to dig out this cable that you've used once and you threw in a bin somewhere. You know, you can basically do whatever you want, whenever you want to do it. And if you don't know how to do it, there's going to be a staff engineer there to help you do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's a that's a really handy thing. And the other thing that I brought up was, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm working in my home studio, I get distracted. Easily. Real easily. Yes. And so when you're going to a place, it definitely, yes, you're under pressure because you're paying for the time. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of, there's kind of like that added anxiety to it but like that also keeps you focused yeah that's the this the mindset so i anyway, it's partly even why i think i've heard or read somewhere you know a lot more companies within the past decade have started to allow more of their workers to you know work at home since especially a lot of it's just you know computer work or you know emailing and that sort of thing you can do meetings just facetime and such um but now they're starting to realize that sometimes the workers don't stay as a uh, focused all the time. Like, right. and so it can help to go back into the office to actually like have that dedicated, you know, eight hour time span, what have you, to just do your work and then you know, end up doing a lot more. 
Yeah. Usually. I'd, and the same with studio. Yeah. I mean, I know you walk into it and it's just like a different mindsets, you know, usually place that you haven't been to a lot, you know, if ever. Right. And so it can be uh, inspiring. It can be kind of energizing. I think there's expensive. a value of kind of being on your toes. Yeah, definitely. You know? Yeah. Like, uh, definitely heightens your senses. You know, what's the, uh, the saying, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. That's right. You know, like, you have to make something happen within these next four hours. So, let's get to it. Something's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a sense. So, you make it happen. So, yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's a valid reason to go to a nice studio. I don't think every project should go <laughs> to a yeah, that's true. nice yeah. studio. But, you know, if you're prepared and you know what you have a vision and, have the money, then it's it's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, and especially yeah, if you're like in a band with you know, say five six people, and you want to actually like record at once, you know, that's still fairly hard to do in a lot of like home studios. Like, oh yeah, it's yeah. definitely. I mean, you can make it happen. I mean, heck, my old band, we made it happen, and that was back in. 2008. Yeah, but <laughs> the monitor situation yeah. is always sketchy. And, oh, my gosh. You know. We took over our drummer's house for literally a year and a half. <laughs> I don't know how his wife stayed with him, <laughs> how she didn't leave. <laughs> my we, wife would have. We had, like, XLR cables going up and down the stairs, through bathrooms, everywhere. <laughs> and God, Sounds like have, a good time. Having my, uh, at that point, it was my Fender uh, Twin Reverb, like, out in the sunroom, facing <laughs> out, like cranked, and it would be like at 9 p.m. at night already. So, <laughs> just wailing away, wailing away. I'm Some, sure the neighbors loved him. Somehow, we never got any complaints. Wow. Maybe it was just like they thought it was kind of cool too. Like, oh wow, the music's happening next door. They're making, they're making an album. Yeah, okay. going to be rock stars. Yeah, famous. Exactly <laughs> not, <laughs> not really. So yeah, when they. Went to record these songs. They did one to two songs per day, which is a which is a fairly methodical pace. Yeah, yeah, that's not crazy. Not, yeah, it's not blazing through them. No, no, spending some time with each. Yeah, and they would really kind of figure out the arrangements and all the arrangements and licks and stuff are all you know around the vocal line. Yeah, definitely. And you know, we're talking Union Station, as you said, Jerry Douglas. Uh, Ron Block, Dave, I can never remember how to pronounce his last name. <laughs> Tominsky, is that it? I don't know how to pronounce yeah, it. He usually plays mandolin and the male singer. Yeah. Mm. But these are, I mean, these are pros. Like, Oh, yeah, these are A-level guys. Yeah, A-level players and singers. You, know. you want to so, take a guess what console they use to record? Uh, give me a hint. The hint is, it is a console we have done a deep dive on. Would that be, wait, what are we talking about? An SSL? What? It was an SSL. It was an yes. SSL 9000J. 9000J. So if you're curious about the SSL 9000J, go back to our Hallelujah episode, and I do a deep dive at the end. Ah, there consoles. you go. Yes. So after they would kind of get the arrangements and kind of figure out the vocal parts and all that kind of good stuff, they would track it live, essentially. And he he built baffles around them. So he had some decent isolation, but there's still, when you listen to the song, which you should do right now. 
Well, if take you a listen. Already, yeah, take a listen. There's a ton of depth and space in the in the mix. It's one of those things where it's like it almost feels like when you turn it up loud and you're just kind of sitting in a quiet environment with with a good system. It kind of just feels like you're inside of it. Yeah, you're which like, is really like cool. in the room with them almost. Yeah, it's like you just shut your eyes and you can you can imagine the band playing all around you. And something I will never figure out how he accomplished, but it's like it's almost like some of the more high end spectrum instruments like the mandolin mm-hmm. uh, kind of sit on top of the mix, like vertically, because mm-hmm. like usually when in a mix you have forwards to backwards. Yeah, that's how like closer or further from you think of them in a sense. But but it seems, and it could just be my brain playing tricks on me. But it almost seems that this particular mix has a y axis, (laughs) sure, (laughs) yeah, sense of height to it. Uh huh. So interesting. I don't know how he accomplished that. I wish I could ask him. It'd be kind of difficult to ask him now since he unfortunately died in 2013. I believe. Yeah, I think sadly passed away in 2013. But it's a really kind of cool experience when you just kind of sit down and really focus in on the mix. You're like, wow. You're like the sense of, sense of you know, space and height. And, of course, everything is pristinely clear. Yeah, it's super clean sounding. Which, actually, it's kind of fun. I, I know most of his signal chains for each instrument. So we've never done this before. But uh, so the, the he would use two mics on each instrument, which is... Kind of what you do for acoustic instruments. Yeah. Because one mic, a microphone is a really focused sound. But with an acoustic instrument, you know, a a guitar, for instance, the entire body is resonating. And you're hearing that entire sound as as one cohesive sound. So when you point a mic, say, just at the 12th fret, you're only hearing the sound from one perspective. So it's really, really handy to have another mic capturing the other perspective yeah. or perspectives. I mean, sure. Yeah. Sometimes you'll have, you could have three or four if you wanted to. Yeah. I mean, you could put mics all over the yeah. place and, and blend them to taste. Yeah. Um, that's kind of like the standard, at least in my experience, for acoustic guitar is you point a mic somewhere close to the 12th fret, more or less, which is about, in some ways, it makes sense because that's kind of almost like a midway point. Just yep. from the entire, you know, instrument's length. But yeah, you're right. It's just kind of capturing kind of one segment it's of that It's a good sound. overall sound, for sure. I mean... Yeah, if it, you only have one mic, it's... Yeah, you're, you're, you're going to be all go. right. Yeah. But but for for an album like this where everything relies on, yeah, you know, kind have, of the sonic purity of each instrument. They have their choice of mics. So. <laughs> yeah, so, so he would use a stereo pair of Neumann KM54 mics, which is a little tube mic that Neumann made, small diaphragm condensers. And ironically, I actually really like this mic. I was just telling John, so I didn't know he used these. I actually used these on the last session I did. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Um, which is fun. I, and I use it on acoustic guitar and I think banjo, but I think I used a ribbon mic on the banjo in conjunction with yeah. it, so it wasn't straight KM54. But KM54 is a great little two mic from Neumann, and they're not over the moon expensive. They're expensive, but they're not. They're attainable. Yeah, what do you, are they like a couple grand? Three maybe? grand, yeah. Three grand, yeah. Three. But what I'm not sure is some of those old Neumann mics have endangered tubes, so they might. it might be on that list where if you buy one, then you're kind of going in with the knowledge that you're going to have to find a tube replacement and it may or may not sound the same. 
I would imagine, yeah, because the tube can make a difference. I mean, same thing with guitar amps to a certain degree. You know, like people try to find like yeah the new old stock, stock, yeah, yeah. old military, like old you know (laughs) old Russian tubes from the forties and such. (laughs) They were built like tanks back then. So he would use a miking technique called the three to one rule. Three to one. This sounds like math. It is kind of math, but it's it's easier than you think. So that's actually what we are miking the guitar with now. So John, give us a little another little sample. Yeah, three to one. So I'm playing my Martin HD28, which is my only acoustic release, <laughs> my only choice anyway. That yeah, sounds all right. I think it probably yeah. does. We'll find out later. <laughs> but so the three to one rule is it doesn't matter the unit attached to the numbers, but let's say you put a mic four centimeters away from the sound source, mm-hmm. then the other stereo mic that you're going to place has to be 12 centimeters from the that other mic's mic. capsule. Sure, yeah. So... If so, for the instance, I'm miking John's guitar eight inches away at the 12th fret, and then the other mic is at the pointing at the body, kind of towards the bridge, and that is 24 inches away from the first mic's capsule. Yeah, while also eight inches away from the body. Right? I don't think it's exactly eight, eight inches oh, okay. away from the body in this situation. Yeah, I might have. Move my bu- <laughs> move the guitar. Yeah, back yeah, a it's bit too. it's very close, and I actually did check the phase because that's what this is about. Is you want to make sure the waveforms line up, and we are in yeah. almost near perfect phase. Nice, so. good job, me. I guess we need to have like a little like uh, thing that plays when we're in perfect phase. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's. I think this might be the first and only time this happens. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, maybe I'll make something. We'll see. <laughs> but that's an easy thing to remember. Kind of like if you're using two stereo mics. Or three to one. Two, yeah, mics. Three to one. Yep. Uh, and, you know, phase is one of those things that you can actually fix on the box. I know a lot of people say, oh, we'll fix the mix in the box. We'll fix it in the mix. Fix it, fix it, fix it. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of a myth. That doesn't really happen. Uh, but phase is actually the one, one thing that you can say, oh, I'll just fix it later. And it's true. You can fix it. Because you can <laughs> literally just, like, move the one track yeah, because all phase right is to... is a difference. It's a it's a difference in time, how long yeah. it takes the sound to get to the capsule. So you can actually just move the waveform by the sample, which is yeah. a really really small, uh, very small increment. Yeah, <laughs> and you can you can line up the waveforms, and there's no perceived difference in timing that you can hear yeah. anything like that. So, so yeah, he would do he did that technique for the acoustic guitar, the banjo, the mandolin, and Allison's violin. So quite a bit of the sound is just a KM54, three-to-one rule, two mics. And then he would put them, all the mics actually, through a Dave Hill Crane song STC8. I can't read what I wrote there. Something something Dave Hill Crane hmm. uh, preamps, which I'm not sure. I'm not familiar with those preamps. Neither am I. I suspect they're just some ultra-clean pure sounding preamp that I wonder you know, if they're like custom made 
probably so. Yeah. That like a Neve preamp, you know, they're known for being like the rock and roll preamp, mm-hmm. where it's like you know you get a bunch of harmonics and they're kind of dirty. Right? Yeah, you know, kind of kind of gives you that that oomph. And like you know, the APIs are kind of known for giving you a, a a richness and and more of like a, a cleaner signal than a Neve, but not quite quite at the purity level as I say a Millennia pre. And so I assume these are probably more like your Millennia pre's than okay. your than your Neve pre's. But I could be wrong. I, I honestly didn't do the research on that. Well, I I might later. And actually, I may well, we may update this we'll, for another time. We may update that for another time, and then it would go through a a gate style level leveler, which is just a compressor. Not it's not very common. I've mm-hmm. never actually seen one in person. Um, so I'm pretty sure it's a tube compressor, uh, and it has like a uh, like an automatic. You know, you kind of just set the input and the output, and it does all. It's compressing all the magic in between. Yeah, it's kind of like an LA two A. So that's that's actually yeah. I have that on the acoustic as well as a. UAD LA2A. Yes. And then for the bass, it was a Neumann U47. Mm. Classic, great bass mic. Okay. Dobro was a U67 and U49, also Neumanns. And then for the vocals was a Sony C800G. But the thing about this mic is he replaced all the power supply wires and stuff with pure gold and silver mic uh, mics, pure gold and silver wires. Ah, he went a little uh, customized it a little, a little customized. Decked now, it out. there are people who Should claim we talk about the gold <laughs> and cabling. We'll we'll have a quick comment on that on the cabling. There are people <laughs> in this world who will tell you cabling makes a huge difference on the sound, and as far as a resistance standpoint. That may affect your sound. Like if you have a cable that has a really high resistance and the signal can't physically make it through the cable, mm-hmm. that's going to affect your sound, of course, because you're going to have to push your preamp higher. And that's going to introduce more noise from the electronics. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. However, assuming the resistance of the cables are, you know, close, there isn't going to be a huge jump in sound quality. From based on just one the type material of metal to another. Yeah. Electrons don't care. Yeah, that's the thing I always heard is like yeah, electrons don't care. They just they move the same. They move you know, the same unless the resistance is actually And I'm sure there's someone out there who will argue with me till they drop dead and we're all blue in the face and it, it, if you want to replace all your cables with pure gold and silver, you can go right ahead. I will not stop you. I won't. I won't even call you dumb. I don't know. I'll stop them. Yeah. Sh- show up at your house. John, John, middle of the John night. I'll stop you. Get that gold out of your cables. <laughs> I just think you could use those resources elsewhere. Yeah. Oh, that, <laughs> and that's a big thing. I mean, whether mic cables or instrument cables. I mean, wasn't that uh, monster cables back in the day when mm-hmm. they were? That was their big one of their big selling points. Is like you know, like the gold tipped, you know, jacks and everything. You know, that's a big thing for guitar cables too yeah (laughs) yeah so i mean i'm personally not gonna be changing out any of my cables for pure gold or silver but i mean you can't argue with the great sound you got but 
No, not at all. Yeah. I can't. I can't say it was just based on him changing out the microphone yeah. power supply cables. He he will claim when you re- if you go and read the sound on sound article, he claims that it made a huge difference. Totally changed the mic. Hmm. And I think that's maybe yeah. a little voodoo magic. Yeah, sound is me. one of those things that if we tell ourselves something's different, we can then hear the difference, or we think oh, we hear yeah, the difference. Yeah. You know? I can't tell you how many times I've been. EQing something in a mix and be like, yeah, yeah, that sounds a lot better. And only to realize like two minutes later that it was bypassed and it was not actually yeah. working. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, <laughs> that's how it goes. That's the the fun in music. It's just <laughs> real. The thing, yeah, it's just really hard to. It's not as easy to hear a difference in sound as you might think it is. Yeah. So. Oh my gosh. You know. Take that for for what you may. Um. I think that's I think that's all I have. He also they also made like a custom converter. Again, it's kind of this voodoo magic stuff. He, <laughs> saying I know there's some there's some voodoo magic going on on these recordings. They're pretty, yeah, they're pretty good sounding. They are great sounding. The whole album. I mean, like really I, it's one of my sounding. favorite sounding albums actually. But oh. you know, when he start talking about well, you know, the Pro Tools converters aren't good enough, and we had our own converters made. Which if you're not an audio engineer, and you're like, what's a converter? Basically what that yeah. is, is the, so with John's acoustic guitar, when he hits a chord, so you have the acoustical energy from the strings vibrating. That's mm-hmm. creating vibrations in the air, which then the air moves and then pushes the diaphragm of the microphone. That is a transducer, and it turns the acoustical energy into electrical energy. That electrical energy travels down your cable... As long as there's not too much resistance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> travels down is gold wiring. <laughs> travels down your cable and then it gets to your converter, which your converter is another type of transducer. It's turning that energy into a binary code so the computer can then reconstruct the waveform in mm-hmm. the digital realm. So essentially what happens is it's either a one or a zero, it's on or off. Yep. And I we can get into all sorts of you know, pulse code modulation theory and all this stuff that oh, has yeah. to do with, but we, we're not going to. Maybe another episode. Um, <laughs> and the, the short of it is there is only one solution for like the kind of equation the computer comes up with. Mm-hmm. And it can only be solved with the perfect representation of what it was given. In other words, having more samples in your like a higher sample rate and bit depth isn't going to get you a more accurate waveform. It's just going to get you more data, if that makes sense. And more data yeah. isn't necessarily a good thing because you already have the perfect match at 44.1. Now, bit depth is has has to do with noise floor, so that's maybe another story. Yeah. But you'll hear a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, at 44.1... You know, it's not, you know, the low end. It's just, it makes it, it feels different. It feels different. It's like, I don't know what you're talking about because the only thing that can come out of the speakers is literally the perfect waveform that w- solves the solution. So, like, mm-hmm. it's exactly what it was before. It's no sure. different. And my 441K. 41K, yeah. So kilohertz. Yeah, yeah. Which we're already talking. It goes up to 22,000 uh, hertz, yeah. which is human 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 yeah human hearing human hearing (laughs) 
has a range of twenty to twenty thousand, approximately. Yeah. Most yeah. of us have a lot less than twenty thousand. Yeah, twenty at best. Twenty yeah. at best when you're 20, a newborn up. baby. Yeah. So, I don't know it. Like I record in forty eight twenty four, mm-hmm. and and that's mostly because that's the film standard. Yeah. So it just makes it easier Weirdly enough. So when you're working with people back and forth and like going to 20, 24, I can't talk today. Going to 48 <laughs> isn't going to hurt your recording. No. And and honestly, going to 192 isn't necessarily going to hurt your recording. But I will say this. There are scientific studies that show that you can get some distortion happening at those super, super high frequencies that we can't hear, but they can create harmonics that actually filter down into the audible range yeah. of hearing. So it can hurt your It hearing. could come back. Huh. Could you could you pass a, a test, you know, this one has distortion from 192, yeah. this one doesn't? I don't know. Probably not. not. Yeah, I would be shocked if you could. But it's just something to know. Yeah. Uh, it almost gets into the one that, like, almost the quasi psychology of music or sound oh like, yeah you know, like, you know neil young you can't will, oh, hear it but you like there's like a weird like subconsciousness that you're recognizing it perhaps yeah. or and again it's one of those things if i have a client and they're like i want to record at 192 i'm gonna say okay yeah was, you know i might if they if they ask me what do you think about recording at 192 i, w- I would say it's unnecessary we could do it at 48 24 and save you a couple hundred bucks on hard drive space yeah but if if they're like, well, I really want to do this at 192, I would say, okay, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. I don't care one way yeah. or the other. <laughs> but you're not necessarily gaining anything. Yeah. There are, are people screaming at me right now because this is a very hotly debated Weirdly enough, topic. Yeah, within uh, the recording realm and yeah, s- studio realm of things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I disclaimer, I'm not calling everyone dumb. But I think it stems from a lack of understanding of how the process works. Perhaps, yeah, some of it. And I also think it's it's still the roots of that still go back to the late nineties, well, early two yeah. thousands of when MP3s first started to come right come out. There's a and, big difference between the yeah. MP3 you listen to today and the one, first one that was yeah. ever produced. We're much better at it now. So, mm-hmm. so yes, I I will say this with the caveat of. In you know the '90s and early 2000s, maybe you could hear a difference because they didn't quite have everything. Yeah, not perfect. every the whole th- idea of like you know information is being lost in the transfer. You know, like I think that held some water back then when you yeah back then when, you, when you're listening being able to, to recapture the sound uh, the waveform at that point. Yeah, and it, well, and so an interesting thing about MP3s. So it uses a principle called masking. Mm-hmm. And what masking is, is it removes information to make the waveform smaller. And you might think, oh, well, obviously it's going to sound worse because there's, we're removing information from it. Yeah, yeah. But what masking is, is you're only removing the information your brain doesn't perceive. So... And thus gets into some of the kind of new agey sort right. of... Uh, <laughs> um, perspectives on this too like well maybe we do perceive it but we just don't know it and that's the magic of you know yeah analog recordings versus digital i I guess it's for the birds but but when people go oh yeah it's just like taking chunks out of your signal it's not 
again, that's not fully accurate. It's just removing yeah. the material you weren't hearing to begin with because your brain can't process all that information. Yeah. So it's, you know, here's a, a guitar and a bass, and there's going to be some overlap in those frequencies that your brain just goes, we don't, we already have this. We don't need to listen to this other thing. And it just throws it out. And yeah. You, you know, it's just a way for your brain to manage sounds. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Which is weird that, you know, we don't think that we do that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and your, your, your ears also compress, too. Which sure. is why compression is can be so difficult to hear. It's like you're trying to listen to, which humans are horrible at hearing compression. It's one of the things that's really really difficult to huh. hear. Um, but uh, but yeah. So I think it's anything anything over like eighty decibels. It's like your your ear will start to compress it with yeah. like a you know mechanical system, bones and stuff. Anyway, that's nice to know. It's probably part survival. Yeah, probably so. Over the time to help save the hearing. (laughs) John, I think we have one listener remaining. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we dive on digital version. On this record, of all things, too. (laughs) Well, it's it's, something you wouldn't even think of, uh, you know. Well, it's, I think, I think it's more important on this record because a lot of, a lot of these kind of things are really, really prevalent in acoustic recordings because everything has to be as pure as possible. It has to, everything has to be clean, you know. Yeah going back to the whole just there's nowhere to hide or you know you can't mask anything like everything's there right from the playing perspective from the tracking engineering perspective there's there's nothing wrong so you want that natural as natural capture as you can right yeah there's nothing wrong with trying to get the absolute best sound quality you should be striving for that you just have to know that there are some things that are worth your time and other things that are maybe not, you should be, maybe they should be considered, but not, it's not going to make or break a great recording. Mm-hmm. That's all. I hear you. So, shall we move on to the rest of the story? Indeed, we shall. <laughs> As Paul Harvey used to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, this tune, Paper Airplane, written by a gentleman named. Robert Lee Castleman, which probably most people have never heard of. <laughs> I didn't hear, heard of him either. But he's just a local singer-songwriter here in Nashville who's had success writing songs for Alison Krauss and Alan Jackson. And he had a couple uh, songs of his done by Chet Atkins. I think later life Chet Atkins, you know, not early life Chet Atkins. But that's really all the folks who have recorded his song. So not a long list, but I think it goes to the story of you have success with one artist and usually they might come back to you if you're a songwriter. And so they like to stick with you. So yeah, so that's him. So this song, it's in the key of E, E major, at least on the guitar side of things, it's not played in open E. It's capoed at the second fret. And with a drop D tuning, so meaning that your sixth string, which is usually tuned to an E, you drop it down a whole step to D. I still think it's the first string. No, it's the sixth string. <laughs> <laughs> I told my students that too. So you have a drop D tuning, so you're playing like you are playing in D, like an open D chord. But then with that drop D, you can actually hit the sixth string as well, and that's part of the chord. And I don't know if maybe the song was just originally written that way, and then when uh, Allison Krauss, they went to it, maybe they changed it to being in the key of E, so they just capoed it up. But it's weird that 
it took me a second to like listening through it a couple times. Like, oh, it's in drop D, not because you really don't need the drop D outside of the very, very beginning. Like, you know, the second to last chord before she starts singing, you hear that open low uh, six string. But other than that, you don't really need that string <laughs> for the rest of the song. But I wonder, like, I, I'm sure the decision probably had something to do with playing it live and. Yeah, perhaps. You know, and, um, I doubt they have another guitar player. No, no, it's just, uh, I believe, uh, Ron Block is yeah. the one playing it. And um, and he plays it, and I uh, pull up some live recordings of them back in around 2011 when they were promoting this album. So him, and this is pretty standard for a lot of bluegrass players, especially if they want to do fingerstyle on acoustic, they'll use a thumb pick. But then, you know, the rest of their fingers. Your favorite. I never play with a thumb pick, you know. <laughs> and that's going back to, you know, Chet Atkins, you know, going back, you know, Merle Travis. In fact, you know, the term Travis picking is named for Merle Travis, who had a thumb pick and he'd play between his thumb pick and his index finger. And then, you know, Chet Atkins would start to incorporate the middle finger as well. And the ring finger. It's almost like this weird, like, evolution. Right, I see. Um, You know, the same thing with Earl Scruggs was one one of the first big banjo players to play with, you know, the thumb pick as well, but index and middle finger. He did Uh, three-finger rolls and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, But, you know, Chet Atkins, you know, he kind of learned some classical guitar, too. He was interested in that stuff. And so, you know, classical guitar players use thumb, index, middle, and ring finger. You don't really use the pinky at all until you get into like flamenco playing, which that's his whole other thing. So to properly play this as it was recorded and how uh, Ron would play it, you'd use a thumb pick in your fingers. And it's one of those things that I think it's more for the player, perhaps, than the sound that you get at the end. Because if I play with this thumb pick, you're really going to, only hear that thumb pick on the low strings. Yeah, most of what you're hearing is coming from the fingers, you know. That but kind do, of like soft the thumb touch. Pick, you think the thumb pick adds a little bit of a definition to the bass? It does, yeah. It, so let's see if we, uh, our listeners can hear the difference. Here's the thumb pick. Here's without the thumb pick. So just like the flesh of my thumb. Already a lot softer, you know, and not as much definition on the yeah, attack. There's, there's definitely a roundness to it. I, a roundness. And some, you know, uh, guitar players or singer-songwriters prefer that, kind of like that, I think it was a fleshy tone. It's almost as close as we can get to, like, the sound of, like, an upright. You know, you just, like... Right. On upright, you just hear the flesh of the fingers going across those strings and that doom-doom-doom, that kind of tone. <laughs> How'd it go? Doom-doom-doom. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, the thumb pick, it does give you that definition. Huh. But you could, you know, if you don't like using the thumb pick, and like I said, 
I think thumb pick is kind of like slide guitar and that you just have to do it all the time to be good at it. Like, and I've heard this from other guitar players too. Like, like if you didn't start playing guitar with a thumb pick, it's like, I wouldn't even recommend you try to pick it up. It's like, <laughs> no pun intended, but you know, it's the same with slide guitar. Like to be really good at slide guitar, you just have to do it all the time in a sense. And, you know, similar with playing with a thumb pick. But a lot of electric players will use the thumb pick. A lot of the chicken players, uh, chicken players, <laughs> a lot of the chicken pickers here in town, like you're pointing that chicken again. I know. Chicken players, you let that chicken alone, John. Yeah. Which, and that's kind of part of the tradition in a lot of country playing is having that thumb pick. So, like your Brent Masons, like he uses the thumb pick a lot. But a lot of the more, um, some of the more modern or at least more contemporary guitar players here in town they won't use a thumb pick like your even some of the young you know hot shot kids these days like your daniel donato or even okay. like a guthrie trap so if you want to attempt at playing this style like you can try with the thumb pick and that does help your bass note definition like truly but i also you know it's takes some time to get used to because you have this like piece of plastic sticking out of your thumb at least this is just a my one thumb pick that I owe, like a cheapy, probably 99 cent dumb right. <laughs> thumb pick. There's a many, you know, people may not know, there's this weird uh, world of guitar picks, like in the business side of things, like handmade guitar picks and thumb picks. <laughs> and like, you can spend up to like $30, $40 for just one pick. Which Please is, don't. I know. I, <laughs> That's crazy. I, I spend up to $5 for my... I still think $5. I, you know what I do for my picks? I go to Amazon.com, and I order like 700 of them mofos, <laughs> put them in my, in my bowl of picks, and call it a day. But usually the pick that I prefer, especially on uh, electric, is I like these V-picks. So they're made here in Nashville, V-picks. Um, Vinny is his name. It's their model called the Fusion model. And one, I just like how it looks because it has like two F holes on it. Right. It's almost yeah. a little Jazz 3-ish. It's like a Jazz 3, but it's slightly larger than a Jazz 3. Which yeah. I think you have. A, and a Jazz 3, despite its name, is like fairly common among like a lot of like metal players and shredders. Really? Yeah. So that's the pick I use. I use a medium size Jazz 3. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's which almost, is almost a little larger too. Yeah, it's almost the exact same size as that pick. That one's well-worn, of course. Yeah. But your pick choice for a guitar, it can be really important, especially once you try to, you know, get a little bit more serious with your playing. Like, you know, sometimes my students will come in and they might be having slight difficulty with some things. I'm like, okay, let me see your pick. And it'll just be like... <laughs> the Fender, like, tortoiseshell. Yeah, <laughs> and it'll be a really thin one, too. Yeah. So this is playing the same thing with a thin pick. So I'm going to hold the pick and do hybrid style, Good like luck. picking fingers. a little easier for me to play because I'm used to doing it this way. But with a very thin pick. Sounds great on the strumming, but on the individual notes, it's kind of a little... Yeah, it's a little wimpy. A little wimpy, and like, yeah. Thin picks are great for strumming. And, you know, this song, there's no strumming on the acoustic. It's all fingerstyle. Even as they get into the chorus, he keeps just arpeggiating through the chords. Um, you hear that same thing with a thicker pick. Mm -hmm. 
Man, you know, pick choice and how you hold the pick and, yeah. and all that, it's it's one of the few things that actually makes a huge difference on acoustic instruments. Yes, yeah. Probably get more of the, to me, it's like more of a plasticky sort of uh, transients going on with the thinner pick. Yeah, I don't know how, to, how I would describe it. More percussive, I guess. Whereas, like, the thicker pick is more of a thud. Yeah, and sound. it cuts it cuts through the string more, too. So it's, you know, any players that want to play fast, you have to go with a thicker pick because you're not going to achieve certain speeds with a super oh, thin yeah. pick, too. You know? I learned that the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of those random things, like, you know, guitar, you just like, okay, you just grab whatever picks around and right. you kind of take it as... Take it for granted, like whatever it is. You know, Dude, it's it got it, it's gotten to the point for me where if I don't have my own, because I use a fairly thick pick, yeah, as well. Uh, it's like if I go somewhere else and they like hand me like this really thin, you know, whatever pick. I'm just like I can't, I can't actually play guitar with this. Oh <laughs> so yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, on your uh, ACDC tribute nights, you're not going to uh, John achieve the results. It with is a... that is the ACDC rock block. Okay, oh, it's gotcha. not a tribute yet. However, maybe one day. <laughs> one day. We should put together have a that tribute gig. show. <laughs> I, would, I would wear the uniform in everything. Yes. <laughs> Except I'm a little bit bigger than Angus Young. He's like five foot nothing. I'm six one. Oh, yeah. He's such so. a shorty. It's hilarious. Yeah. It would be an interesting show. Yeah. <laughs> but um, another thing with, uh, I think a lot of Alison Krauss's stuff and perhaps you know, in the songs that she chooses to record, you know, they all have a certain sadness or kind of darkness to them. And some of that's inherent within the song. Like, you know, this, you know, the first chord in the song is a minor chord. So it already sounds a little sadder little, just by nature. Ominous. Yeah. And then the chorus, once you get to the chorus, they go to the major chord, the relative major. And it kind of, a uh, I think speaks true with the hold on let me get these pulled up with like the lyrics when they finally get to the chorus it's like it sounds a little more promising at that point in a sense like right. more uplifting like how many days should I smile with a frown but then it's like oh it's like <laughs> it sounds cool sad right. cuz you're not around with the sun on your shoulders and how many nights must I wake up alone and know in my soul that it's almost over now Man, and her vocal delivery on this yeah. record is just so good. Yeah, it is good. You, just li- you can listen great. to the whole thing and just be in awe of her yeah. vocal performance, which they spent about seven months straight just wow. doing vocals. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and he said he would comp, you know, about three or four different takes together. And he said the comping yeah. wasn't too strenuous. It's not like they were chopping off words. It's Yeah, not like you're combining, you know, syllables to right. make one word. That's you know, like this phrase from that take, like that phrase. Yeah. So pretty easy. Well, that's cool. Um, but yeah, the song itself is kind of sad. I guess, you know, something about lost love and the title finally comes in the last verse. Our love is like a paper airplane flying in the folded wind. I kind of like that. Right, yeah. Turn of phrase there with the... It's kind of like a little whimsical yeah. sounding. <laughs> but I don't think there's much else... I can talk about. No, I mean, from a, from anything a, else? Come from a kind of a music standpoint, it's not, you know, making any new head roads into places we've never been. 
you know. No. Like, the only uh, interesting thing in regards to that would probably be, like, there's this deception of something sounding like a new chord to a new chord when technically it's still, like, part of the same chord. It's just the inversion. And they start to play around with that later on in the song. But, you know, the verse structure is, you know, I'll say the actual pitches of the chords and not the capo shapes that I'm making in my head. You know, you have a C sharp minor. And then you go to B with D sharp in the bass. So that's an inversion. And then they go to the B, but with the root in the bass. So those second and third chords are actually part of the same chords, just an inversion that you're hearing. And that goes to the four chord. And then you go to your minor, a two minor. So uh, I might drop D, so I'm f- your F sharp minor. Yeah. And then usually they go back to the C sharp minor to B. So using like two of your minor chords in the key that we're in, in the key of E. And that gives it that kind of melancholy, uh, sort of uh, somber, just, you know, the nature of having those minor chords in yeah. there. Um, but it's a great, you know, example of how to approach writing if you're thinking of like, you know, oh, my songs sound the same. I'm always going... You know, stuff like that, like right. changing up the order, like, you know, instead of using that major chord there, what well, if you use the minor chord? You know, there's such thing as minor chord substitutes, you know, you go with the relative minor chord instead of the major chord. And sometimes you, vice versa, go with the relative major chord instead of the minor chord. You know, like what happens in the song, instead of C sharp minor for the verses, the relative major is your E. And that kind of gives that that so brightness. How do you, so, if I'm trying to write a song, how 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 do I, the layperson, yes. find that relative key to switch to? So there's a couple ways to go about it. Usually, what they will teach in like theory classes is, say you have a chord, say it's a C chord, and that's kind of easy to picture on the piano too. You have it using all the white keys: a C note, an E note, a G in any order or combination. Those are your three notes for the C chord. From C, if you count down three keys or count down three half steps, so you go C to E, so that'd be one half step. Uh, Let me make sure I got a C note. Still, damn drop D. You said down from C? Yeah, so you count down C to B. B? Oh, I said B. Yeah, you said E. Oh, so I meant to say B as in boy. C to boy. One half step down, another half step down to a B flat, and then your third half step down to A, so that's A minor. So A minor is like your relative minor to C major. And so you can do that vice versa. Maybe you're writing a song in E minor, the relative minor from E minor, so you count up from the minor. Three E to F to F sharp to G. So G major is your relative to E minor. So let me... Let me ask you this. If I'm, so I guess I, I'm thinking of a good way to phrase this. 
Yeah, is there a difference? Because A minor is also the, the minor six, right? Yes. So could you just go to the minor six, or is it significant that it's three half steps down? Because it... Uh, Yes and yes, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, what I'm asking. Yeah. But you can if, do that for any uh, major chord. Like if I'm in G, yeah. so I can go to E minor. Yep. Like the key E minor is what we're talking about yeah. here, not just a chord. Um, so I think what John is explaining is how to pivot. And so, yeah. so you're, you're using what's called a pivot chord. You play that E minor, and then you play, immediately after, you play another chord in the key of E minor that's not in the key of G. And that kind of clues your ear in, because you're adding new sharps and flats, right? So, oh, I'm not talking about that, yeah, per se. Um, more so like if you're, you had the the E to G thing, right? G to E minor. But then, like, say the rest of your song is like a standard song, like you know. I went from G to C to D, back to C. Now I'm going to do the minors. A minor instead of C. Oh, so you're still staying in the same key. Same key. B minor instead of D. And all those chords are chords that exist naturally in the key of G. Yeah, so, so you're you just have playing your... the minor chords yeah so every uh, major chord in a key has its own relative minor you could say okay so i was i was going a step further with a key change oh yeah key change yeah i'm not not talking about a key change but that's like a good thing for like you know beginning writers you know you have your a lot of your like major chords on the guitar kind of a lot of those basic chords we learn at first g c d a e but each one of those kind of have a you can think like a a cousin chord, like an associated like minor <laughs> chord to them, and it's great to like you know know that oh if I'm playing a D chord or I'm in the key of D, B minor is the relative minor to that, and really it doesn't matter if that D chord is your one chord, like you're playing in the key of D, or if like you're playing in the key of A, D the D chord. It's still in that key. It happens to be your four chord, but the B minor is still kind of a substitute for that. And so that's kind of a fun thing to do. And like in a lot of songs, like I could have, could almost like take this oh, song. So, so you can, I'm, I'm actually really interested in yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> so like I can, could like change a song into just staying, into, staying with the major chords instead I of see. the starting chord. I go. So that's like the verse form. But I took away all the minors and I kept, I went, <laughs> put them back into the major chords. And you can sound somewhat similar. You don't have as much like chordal movement. But then all of a sudden, like some of the darkness has disappeared. Right. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's kind of a fun thing. Like I had fun with it when I was in high school. I was starting to learn my chords on the guitar. Like, like oh, I can, you know. Instead of playing this bar chord here for a major chord, I could play the relative minor for it, and it kind of gives it I a see. 
more somber tone if you want to change it up like that. But that's great, you know, to create that contrast, harmonic contrast is something that uh, sadly seems to be a little lost these days in a lot of current music. Everything's a stagnant progression throughout the entire song. Well, you got your one chord, you got your four chord, yeah. you got your five chord, <laughs> Some and you got your one that. chord. Yeah, right? <laughs> or a lot of these days, it's like a four chord to six minor to your five, that sort of thing. But, you know, a song like this, it, they give you that contrast of the minor sound on the verse, and then it brightens up, almost like opens up in a sense. It almost feels like you're yeah, opening you, up the curtains and you know the what, sun's shining through the window. You know what song, or not, yeah, you know what song, it kind of does a similar thing, but they might actually change the entire key is Pink Floyd, Comfortably Numb. And they go oh, into yeah. the chorus. Oh, it's been forever since I've played. I, yeah, I can't think, I think of they go, they go major. Yeah, the whole song does. is in minor. All of a sudden, they yep. uplift you. Yeah. Which is a really, that's also a really good, you know, as you were saying, way to keep your songs from droning on. It's like. Exactly, yeah. You, have, you get create those waves, like, within the structure of the song, in yeah, a sense. And, like and, those, and she she's playing with that with the lyrics almost, too. Like, it's, she's kind of weaving it all in and out. Yeah, but, yeah, that's what it seems like. So well, and I, I guess that's probably uh, intrinsic to the song, as it was written by Mr. Castleman, yeah. <laughs> who was also um, like a fingerstyle guitarist, too. Yeah. yeah. So, and uh, funny enough, when I s- pulled up a video of them playing this live, I think it was on Conan back in 2011, uh, Ron played the beginning exa- almost literally verbatim to what was recorded really yeah because i was wow. kind of interested like is it really in drop d and like because you really only hear that low six string once i mean at least to my ears you know prevalent prevalently at least once they like it was like verbatim to what the, it is on the record too like oh that's interesting yeah, fair yeah. enough <laughs> yeah. yeah but i think we may have shot or bolt on this one yeah that about does it for me again Really, really gorgeous mix. Really highly recommend listening to the entire album. If you're just, if you're starting off mixing and you kind of want to get a sense of depth and space and, you know, just a really great balance of where everything kind of has its own home in the mix, this album is a great album to listen to and refer back to. It has them doing a Jackson Brown song too towards the end of this album. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't even even notice. Yeah. I that. do love Jackson. Brown we had as uh, well. mentioned him in a previous episode. Indeed, kind of. One day we'll have to do an episode for the loadout. The loadout. Yeah, yeah. I love that song. <laughs> or maybe these days, because that's been done by a few different artists. Yeah, he's but had several people cover his stuff he's a over great the years, writer, man. Well, cool. That should do it. This John, has been Coffee and Consoles. No, 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 no. my friend. What? If people want to get in contact with yeah. us, how do they do that? I don't know. How do they do that? Well, you email coffee and consoles. That's C O N S O L E S at gmail.com. I was going to say, write, a note, write us a note on some paper, fold it up into a paper airplane, throw it into the wind, see if <laughs> yeah. it reaches us. The wind will, will bring it to us. Maybe one day, if we just have a ton of listeners, we'll have a P.O. box. Ooh, that's professional sounding. But I doubt that because the mail probably won't exist when that happens. So. <laughs> So yeah, shoot us an email with your with your thoughts and any feedback. We you know we'd love to hear from you guys. You know, don't be afraid. We don't bite. At least at least I don't. Can't speak for John here. 
Uh, I've stopped that. I grew out of that phase. John's grown out of it, so yeah. you're you're fairly safe to shoot us an email. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Give us some feedback. Any song suggestions? Like song suggestions yeah. would be fun. Or if you have fun. any, you know, specific questions about music theory or playing guitar or what what's it like playing in a band for John, or any engineering questions for myself. Yeah, I'd be definitely. happy to to field those. Yes, indeed. And I've been Kevin. I'm John. This has been Coffee and Consoles. Thanks for listening again, folks. Long days and pleasant nights. Just like the record, it kind of fools you. And you're like, oh, it's o- it's over. No, it's not over yet. <laughs> okay, now it's over. Nope. One more line. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>